sorry I don't love you A fresh I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right I wish you could be happy Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Katie Schaefer this week, and we are going to be talking all about the Shawshank Redemption. We are talking both the short story titled Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and the movie adaptation which just goes by, the Shawshank Redemption. Katie, are you excited to be talking some Stephen King today? Oh, hell yes. I love me some Stephen King. I've been reading him forever, and I particularly love this story, so I am on board 100%. Yeah, so we're going to go ahead and dive right on in first with the short story, since that is the source material. And if you want to find the short story these days, you can find it in the book Different Seasons, which has four of Stephen King's novellas. It also has The Body in there, which is another huge novella of his. So there's definitely plenty of good stuff in there. But this is the first story in that book. And It felt different just because, one, it's not really a horror story. In a sense, there is some horrific things that happen in it, but not in the usual way you would think of horror when you relate it to Stephen King's stories. So I think, you know, with this and the narration style, it's a bit different than some of the other stuff that he has done. Definitely. I think different seasons is laid out, you know, with one story for each season. And it kind of feels, I I really loved the little titles in the beginning for this one. It's hope springs eternal. And it really encapsulates what the whole story is about. And I personally really like his non uh, horror fantasy sci-fi stuff. This one is situated firmly in the real world and there isn't really any supernatural element to it, which deviates so much from, almost everything else he does. Yeah, this spans a long period of time to not necessarily the narration of the story, but the story that is being told through that narration. And, you know, Red is the character telling us everything. You know, he's the one talking about Andy Dufresne, who comes to the prison and goes through all of these horrific things when he first gets there, as every newbie seems to. And It's just one of those things where, you know, the short story is, or novella, whichever you prefer to call it, it's, to me, you can kind of call it one and the same, depending on how you look at it, but I guess novella is technically the correct term, but, you know, this goes into... Yeah, how many words is it? I I, I have no idea. I know it was... Because that's the determiner. It determines... The amount of word count determines what's a short story, what's a flash fiction, what's a novella, what's a novelette. It's all really ridiculous. And there's this very arbitrary cutoff. I think that one is short enough that it's technically a short. I think the body, though, is is a novella. So it's so arbitrary, but... Yeah, it's confusing. (laughs) Right. But for King, like, it's... It's a big difference. And the length, right. you know, this one's, I think it's 100 pages in yeah. the, not the trade, but the mass market copy that I got. Yeah, thereabouts. I think it's just under 100 for me. So, you know, whatever you prefer to call it, I don't know the numbers. I apologize. I, I will learn for next time. <laughs> but for now, you know, this story goes into more detail than the movie does at times. And that's something I want to discuss here because I was reading 
you know, the passage where he starts talking about the sisters and, you know, sort of the rape culture in the prison. And that seemed much more graphic than it was in the movie because I felt like the movie sort of insinuated that all of those things happened without necessarily needing to show you the entire thing. Really? Yeah, it really it glosses over it halfway and then hints at the rest of it. But in the book, it's as graphic as something like that could get in well, I suppose not. King can get really can get really bad, but I think it was you knew everything that happened to that poor man. But it's said in this spare style that is uh, all the more shocking for its limitations. It's like oh, it leaves so much to the imagination, and that's almost worse than the you know the deep particulars of what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of brings me to something else I want to talk about with the short story, and that's how well it ages. Because, as you know, reading Stephen King novels, you can tell sort of the time period that some of these things are written during because of the language used and everything like that. But with the narration style for this, you know, it's happening at a later date and time and then we're going back to the 40s and 50s and learning about how all of these things went down for that time period so I think that helps it age a little better because you're purposely being taken back in time to tell a story through a certain time period it's not just the fact that the story was written in that time period right it's a very um it's such a it's almost like a historical fiction because I think he wrote it in like the eighties. I think when that was, when that was published. And so it's always in the past and, but it's also like this strange aging because that guy has been, you know, red has been in the, in the story, at least he's been in jail since like the thirties. So he doesn't know what the rest of the world is like. He just knows this microcosm that is the prison. And then, everything goes from there. So he grows and develops just like all the people do in the prison, but it's at this glacial rate. You know, they don't know the new slang. They don't know, you know, the, they only vaguely know the happenings in society outside of their little prison world. And so it ages very slowly. And so even when he's talking about like being in the seventies, you know, King has a really specific speaking style. He talks in almost all of his books. He uses the phrase, can you dig it? You dig it, man. And, uh, it, it, it's so very 60, late 60s, early 70s, but there's almost none of that in this one. It's all very, it, it feels authentic to the period that we're going through and feels authentic to the person that's supposedly telling this, us this story. It helps too that you aren't spending too much time in any particular decade. He's like, okay, here are the facts. Here's what happens. And this is, you know, how everything progressed. We're not spending, you know, half of the story in the 30s and what happened to him. It's just like, even though for him it happened at a glacial pace, for us it happened much faster than that because, you know, this is around 100 pages. So you have, you know, maybe 20 pages a decade, which isn't that much in the bigger picture of things. No, no. Right. I think there's a little bit more time spent in those first two years. Right. But then after that, it it just kind of flicks through it. And at one point in the story, he talks about how 
you know, in prison, you know, he didn't see so much of the stuff that's happening. This is all like sometimes third, fourth and fifth hand. Um, and he sifts through the, you know, the lies from the truth and the exaggerations. And that's what he's telling here. And he talks about how he views Andy almost as uh, Andy Dufresne, you know, the guy we're telling the story about, he views him almost very legendary. And so it's points, it comes off as almost mythical, like the scene in the book where he Andy first confronts uh the guards when they're up on the rooftop and uh, tells you know uh the guy about how he can save money on his taxes and gets them beers like it it takes on this mythic proportions uh from this very diminutive like calm self-assured guy who isn't especially in prison like the typical ideal man he steps outside those boundaries to be almost like a Mad Max character. Exactly. I like that we get the setup of who Red is, too. You know, he's the guy you go to when you want something. And Andy quickly learns that, you know, he's the smartest guy in there. And no one ever really doubts that either. Maybe the guards do and the warden does. But then they come to realize, hey, you know, this guy isn't trying to make things difficult for us. He's trying to help us, even though he's stuck in here, <laughs> you know? So it's one of those right. things where you're like, okay, he understands what's going on in a way that other people don't. And he truly is innocent and he never loses sight of that. And, you know, Red has the line, everyone in here is innocent. <laughs> and, you know, that's true right. because that that's something that, you can probably relate to in today's society, you know, no, no one ever takes blame for anything. <laughs> so in that aspect, right, exactly. it, you know, it ages better in some ways than it does in others, just because of how slowly things like the prison system progress, if you can even say they really have, you know, they, they have, right. they have a little bit. I'll give them that, but, but not for not much for the better. Right. <laughs> Only individual prisons. Now we've got, you know, you know, commercial prisons almost and they barely and they do touch on that you know and I yeah. just think about that the inside out program that the that you know Norton or I think runs and, and with selling the slave labor of his prisoners outside you know and we see but other than that like it really feels like what you're saying like things move so slowly it, it really feels like there is no progression in their treatment like these guys are still, you know, when Red gets in there, they're still getting the same kind of food and the same treatment from the guards, even though in the book, at least, you know, I think throughout the course of the book, they have at least three wardens or four wardens. And uh, the really nasty guy that's played by Clancy Brown, Captain Hadley, is uh, there throughout the whole thing, whereas he's just there for a small portion of it. So they, as the prisoners, the lifers, watch these guards and these wardens come and go, and they see no or they see very little real change to their lives. But, you know, 30 years passes and 30 really big years in America. You know, we go through World War II. We went through, you know, the Great Depression and the Korean War and the speed up and all of these things. And there's just no real growth yeah. from them. They're still living in these same cells and eating the same food and dealing with the same bullshit that they always have had. And I believe Red had been there for practically 30 years by the time Andy got there. And then he was there for, you know, 
a couple decades at least by the time he made his great escape. But before we dive into the escape, I want to talk about Tommy's storyline in this because that is something that when I read this, because I saw the movie first, so I was like, okay, this moment is coming up and then it didn't. And I was like, oh, right. Well, okay. All right. So they just sent him to a different prison i you know i guess that's morally better (laughs) right but it also like it's it becomes more complicated from a from a moral perspective like in you know it has such a different ending than the movie he's just sent away and it it presents it as like he sold out right like he liked him enough but he had this family to support and he could go get an easy he could live out the rest of his term on easy street and it's like well and therefore it shows like the well i don't know if it shows it but it hints at this like base commonality among cons that they're looking for the easy ride and that felt more it felt more true to the story in the way that the book is uh much more uh like layered you know there is no there's no heroes in the book. Like, yeah. I, I mean, Andy is to a certain extent, but for the most part, like the people they're dealing with are hardened criminals and they're not, no matter what you do, they're they're still looking out for themselves. Even though Tommy leaves too, I feel like in the story, it takes a little longer for that impact to really hit Andy because, you know, he's just at a different place he's not dead like he is in the movie which i feel like that gives you a more immediate impact and obviously with the movie you have less time to tell the story you know people aren't going to be spending you know necessarily as much time reading as they or as much time watching the movie as they would be reading the story i mean because stephen king stories can get pretty dense and even though this was less than 100 pages i think i spent more time on it than i did you know spending the two hours two hours and 20 minutes there we go i knew it was over two hours i just didn't know how far over two hours but i think you know for people who read quickly it's probably roughly the same amount of time yeah but you know you just have to get to things faster in movies sometimes because you don't have as much of the person's attention necessarily like when you sit down to read a book you know you're in it for the long haul but when you sit down to watch a movie you're like okay i'm out of here in two and a half hours tops so (laughs) it's it's a different right and thing you don't get the nuance right like you don't get the internal the internal aspect of it where you can really delve deep into it you you don't get to show that much in a movie because people get bored super that's super boring in a a movie because you're just essentially describing you know show don't tell as always but and I think they did a good job of that in the movie but I liked that in the book you get so much in well for a Stephen King for a Stephen King story in a little package you know like his books are legendarily massive but this one shows his skill at writing such a compact thing because there is a beginning a middle and end people change throughout the course of the story and it doesn't uh it doesn't ever veer into anything that feels unnecessary everything that's in that story adds something to it and that's not necessarily true of some of his other stuff i still love it even when it meanders but this one is really tight and really well done and that's having I've read quite a few of his short stories and that's true of most of them even his more current ones 
there is each bit is very carefully placed in there to give you this fuller perspective of the you know the experiences that the character is going through yeah and i mentioned the escape earlier so that's the big reveal towards the end of the story and you know you have andy literally chipping away year by year at this wall right and just his persistence throughout the whole thing and the fact that no one noticed he did have that cellmate very briefly for i believe eight he months draft. yeah and he, yep. he there's a draft in the cell exactly but i don't know if he necessarily put two and two together because at that point andy probably still had a ways to go as far as you know completing right. that entire tunnel that he made there because it was what 10 feet of cement wall they said the wall was 10 feet thick from there to the outer edge yeah. but each piece was only like four feet so he only had to get through four feet of rock in order to make it to that two foot wide oh, okay. tunnel which is just insane just insane the idea of two feet wide like oh yeah I couldn't imagine. I'm claustrophobic, so it would just be a nightmare to me. And then going through the sewer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, they, I thought a big difference that I saw from the movie, because I read the story and then watched the movie. So I had a really good opportunity to see where these differences are. And in the story, they almost from the beginning, you know, Andy's going to escape. Like Red doesn't hide that fact from you. And in the movie, they don't do that movie you don't really know what the ending is going to be until the end so that I never felt in the story like it teases it for you and so by the end you're just ravenous to know okay you've been hinting at this what did he do how did he get away like what's going on and and then at the end it's so satisfying that what that he was so perseverant and it took you know, 15, 20 years for him to dig through and then to finally make the decision to actually escape yeah and you could see how the thing with tommy sort of pushed him over the edge too because he was very hopeful that he could get out the right way and then when that disintegrated right in front of his face he was like all right i'm getting out of here anyway so screw you yeah. guys and then right well fuck this i'm going that was kind of the attitude he seems to take on after he goes through that depressive stage of like oh i'm just i'm just screwed and then Oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm 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 getting out. I'm, it's worth it to try at least. Yeah, so that brings us to talking about the ending here. Because like the Tommy situation, when I got to the end of the story, I was like, "Oh, that's different." <laughs> and it, right. It it wasn't like bad necessarily. It's just very open-ended and it in a way it does feel a little incomplete because you're like okay well he's hoping that he does all the, these things but I want to know if he does them <laughs> right you want to know if Red made it to to the final like did this dream come true right that's the eternal question and yeah like Stephen King has a history of that some people say of him not pulling off the ending and I I think that that's such a personal choice like you and I have talked about this, that it's such a, you know, when you start reading a story, like you can always talk about good beginnings to stories and people, it's easy to get people to agree, but a good ending is a lot harder to get because people have their own experiences that they bring to the artwork. And uh, so by the end, 
you have all these opinions about the choices that have been made. And if you are really attached to this character, you want to know, did he make it? Yeah. Did he survive? Did he make it to Mexico? The thing for me with this ending, I don't necessarily think it's bad. It's just, you know, like you said, everyone is going to have different opinions on how they like characters in a story. You know, books are very open to interpretation just because people naturally are going to interpret things differently. It's the same with any media. You could take a song, a TV show, a movie, and it'll feel that way. And with this story, because I saw the movie first, I was like, oh, I wasn't really expecting that ending. But, you know, I can see why he left it open-ended there. And it's interesting that the movie sort of took that liberty to change that ending. And I think, you know... We'll talk a little bit more about different seasons as a whole here, even though I, have, I haven't quite finished it. I'm still working my way through it. But, you know, as far as the ending goes, I think, you know, this will be a good place to pause and then talk about the movie more in depth after we get through, you know, the collection of stories. Right, because I feel like it really does. Um, it is a whole piece. Like I read different seasons pretty early on in my Stephen King reading I think I was probably still in high school when I read it and it does all kind of work work of a piece and his short story collections are known for that that's what he does when he publishes them he writes he sits down and writes a series of short stories based around one concept he has one called After Dark I think it is I'd probably be wrong about that, but I think it is, that uh, 1922, his most recent movie based on a short story that came out, it's on Netflix, it has uh, Thomas Jane in it, and that one is also pretty good, um, and that one is his incredibly dark, they are really messed up and very uh, dark psyche stories, whereas Different Seasons feels more like it moves through and a, a year of life or almost a cycle of humanity right. in both its its darkness, which is apt pupil for sure, and its light, which is the Shawshank Redemption. And then you get into the body, which is, you know, the, the fall, the realization and the loss of innocence. And then the last one, I can always, I can almost never remember which one that one is, but I seem to remember the winter one is fairly dark and pretty bleak. Yeah, for me right now, I am in the middle of apt pupil. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the, the final one is the breathing method, which I have not heard That's of right. that one. But the body is the story that the movie Stand By Me is based on. And that movie definitely has a similar feel to Shawshank Redemption in the sense that it isn't like it or Carrie, or The Shining. It's not that kind of story. And I think that's why these stories work well together in different seasons, because you have this general theme that is running throughout these stories, and you're not dealing with King in his typical, you know, horror sense. Like I mentioned with the Shawshank Redemption at the beginning of the episode. So it's just one of those things where they do fit nicely together. And even though I haven't read, you know, any of the body or 
the breathing method just yet. I do plan on making my way through this, but I'm very familiar with Stand By Me. I feel like that's a movie that's kind yes. of hard to not be familiar with, even if you haven't seen the whole thing. And I don't recall if I have. I feel like I have, but I also don't know. <laughs> For me, that was one of the first Stephen King adaptations. Um because that was 1986, it was made in 1986, and so I would have been about a year old, um, and so I remember seeing it very young, like four or five years old, because I loved Will Wheaton, because my family, all of my family, <laughs> except my sister, are huge Star Trek nerds, so Will Wheaton, uh, I was like, yes, I'm all about this, and my mom and sister were really into both River Phoenix and Jerry O'Connell, so it was like, oh, let's watch this when they're young, and I remember being like, this is this really feels like a kid's movie in the beginning. And then by the end, it's not so much. It's much right. more like a teenager adult movie because it's about the loss of innocence. And it, it's also one of his, you know, not super natural stories. And I think from what I recollect, the, the body story and Stand By Me are pretty much almost direct adaptation. It is a very close to the original material, even more so, I think, than the Shawshank Redemption. So why don't we go ahead and talk about the movie now? And I obviously want to start with the casting because this had some big names. Obviously, you have Morgan Freeman playing Red, and I know he's been in the news lately for things he has said in the past, but... It's yeah. for him. It's one of those situations where I, I feel like we should address this since, you know, he is the main part of this movie, aside from Tim Robbins, who plays Andy Dufresne. But, you know, from my understanding of reading through the news and everything, Morgan Freeman said some things that people didn't necessarily like, but he didn't act on anything. He's, you know, by no means a Harvey Weinstein or anything like that. So, nope, don't be. He's one of those in-betweeners. He's one of those, like, where each issue is its own issue. And, like, I, I this isn't a dismissive comment by any means. I, I feel like Morgan Freeman is kind of presented in those stories as a dirty old man, which, as someone who's had to deal with that in her work life, you know, years ago, is no better than any other kind of dirty man. But he's he's known for saying rude things to people and that kind of stuff was what my understanding of it was and reading of it. And it doesn't, for how old Morgan Freeman is, it doesn't surprise me. And it's, it's still disappointing. It's like, Oh, right. Just, it's not the image you were, you were selling yourself as. And it's always so disappointing to find out that the image you have of an actor or actress, when it's so different from what their act, their real actions are in their daily lives it's always more affecting and I don't think that his particular issues it's not like you said Harvey Weinstein or Roman Polanski or anything like that but it still affects my viewing of his films I still look at it like oh I feel a little uncomfortable consuming this it takes it away from his older roles and this one was a big role for him I mean this was one of the things that made him a household name that movie was shown on tv and probably still is all the time. I know it is because when I was looking to rent it online, when I searched streaming, it's on TNT twice on the day that I was looking to stream it. Yeah, I think with his situation, what I found the most interesting was the women who were defending him 
because I was oh, yeah. looking at it and, you know, Suzanne Summers and Diane Warren, those are two pretty big names. And they were like, you know, in their eyes, he was just a big flirt, which, you know, maybe people don't want Morgan Freeman flirting with them. But, you know, like you said, it's not as bad as being a Harvey Weinstein. But if he made people uncomfortable, you know, that's that's a case by case thing. This wasn't like some big overarching thing. But, you know, it, that's not the point of this podcast. So I just wanted to make note of right. it to let people know we are sexual we harassment are is not cool, folks. Right. Right. It's not acceptable no matter who you are. Exactly. And, you know, obviously, like you said, this was a big role for him. And he has that iconic voice, too. So to have him being the one narrating this, you sort of really felt that. And then, you know, I don't think Tim Robbins has done too terribly much in the way of big roles since this one. But I feel like he played Andy to a T. You know, when I was reading the story, because I read it afterwards, too, it was like Morgan Freeman's voice was in my head the entire time. And I was like, I can't undo this. And the same thing happened to me when I read Fight Club after watching the movie. I was like, well, here's Brad Pitt's voice in my head this entire time. Yes, exactly. It's like, well, it's just Brad Pitt all the time. Which, hey, I'm okay with that. I can live with a Brad Pitt reading reading me stories. (laughs) But... You know, I think he he does such a good job in this, and he's very. Uh, I particularly love that it's only mentioned a little bit, but in the book they talk about that uh, Red thinks that he's called Red because he's Irish, and that line is in the movie. Uh-huh. Um, and Red establishes that he has red hair, which I'm sure is the reason in the book why he chose the name to call him Red. But I love that they had Morgan Freeman say, "It's because I'm Irish," and I just was like, "Yes, everything about this is." fabulous of course you know and Frank Darabont was the director for it so I'm hoping that that was his choice because it's it's a delightful little moment especially in the 90s in the 90s it was pretty big to you know cast a black man in an in a established role for a white guy and that it was Morgan Freeman you know pushes the boundaries every little bit counts but it, it definitely made him a more recognizable and acceptable you know in the 90s it was still pretty racist in Hollywood not that it is now yeah <laughs> it was a lot harder for you know there to be more than one black guy acting you know, there's one name and that's it and Morgan Freeman helped change that I think to a certain extent and this role really helped that yeah you have other big names in this movie too you have Bob Gunton as Warden Norton you have William Sadler as Haywood you mentioned Clancy Brown earlier as Captain Hadley and then, you- oh, and Clancy Brown though in this role, I I just have to say is like perfection. Yeah, he is the absolute perfect like cruel asshole because he is just an unmitigated, sadistic dick. He he is just he is fine with both being friends with these prisoners and beating the crap out of them. And at one point, like or two points, he kills people in the movie just through his own. I'm just going to beat you to death. I'm just going to shoot you. Like, and that's, and he seems to have no remorse or care about it. It's like, whatever. And Clancy Brown plays that perfectly. Yeah. The last person I wanted to mention too was Gil Bellows as Tommy, because I feel like he played the role really well, considering how much it changed from the story too. 
because I don't think his role would have been as effective, like I said earlier, if he just went off to another prison. Like, he sort of played that kid who didn't know a whole lot about how things work in the world. And, you know, he had been in jail before and shared a cell with the guy who claimed to have murdered, you know, Andy's wife and the pro golfer that she was having an affair with. So you have this kid who doesn't really know that he probably shouldn't say anything about that and just let it go because it's prison and who knows what could happen to him. But he realizes that Andy was the person who went away for it. And he, he he's an innocent man sitting in jail. So he, you know, starts telling Andy about it and Andy goes to the warden and everything like that. And I feel like while you still get the same result for Andy in the end, it changed at a somewhat faster rate because of Tommy's death instead of him just being sent away. Right. I agree. It really makes it a visceral change and it, it shows much more um, how deeply it affects Andy. Whereas it's a lot harder to do that with, it's a lot harder to have subtlety with that kind of stuff in movies and I think for audiences to have him just leave and go to another prison, it, it makes it easier. Like, then you get focused on what Tommy did, and it's not so much on how this affects Andy, which is really what the whole the whole part of that is about. And with him dying, it then becomes much more final. There is no opportunity. He can't engage a lawyer. Like, you don't have time to go into all of that in a, in a movie. And this just answers the question and allows us to understand Andy's grief for his possible, you know, escape, legal escape from prison for something he didn't do. And so I think it was a good choice in the end. And it solidifies just how utterly terrible the warden is in that, just how awful and willing he is to condemn Andy to this, life of sin or to this life of crime in this jail rather than you know pursue justice it's not about justice for the warden it's about what can i get out of this guy because he's a criminal obviously even if he didn't do it he's in jail so obviously he deserves punishment yeah and other than sort of skirting around the situation with the sisters and making you infer more than just showing you it really felt like that Tommy's story was the biggest change in the movie other than the ending. But I do believe I'm blanking on his name right now, but the old man who ran the library, the tiny, tiny library Brooks. Yes, there we go. I don't recall. Yep. That was interesting. Yeah. That change that they did. Because I didn't recall them talking about his life on the outside at all in the story. It was like, you know, Hey, there's this guy and he got out and that that felt like the end of it. And then, you know, in the movie, we get this added element and it helps because then you have Red going through that same thing later and you see Red say, stay in the same exact room that Brooks did when he gets out. And, you know, it says Brooks right. was here and that sort of had a lasting impact too, I think, because, you know, then it made Red determined to not go out the same way that Brooks did. And I think the ending change solidifies that even more. 
right. I definitely agree. Because I was, you know, I literally just closed the book. and was like, all right, now I'm going to go on Google Play and rent this, uh, rent this movie here. And so I watched it and I was like, that is not what happened. That's Red's story. And the end of the short story, what happens to Brooks is what happens to Red at the end. And you get, I think you get maybe a couple sentences. And I think King tells you that Brooks ends up committing suicide because he couldn't handle it on the outside. But but that's it. I think it's literally like one sentence about it. And because the cons would have no way of finding out what happened anyway, right. unless they read the paper and it was in it. But I, and then at the end, when you see Red go through it, it's all done in shorthand. You don't have to do this explanation. So it cuts short a lot of that detail where by the end, and at this point, Andy has escaped and audiences don't have a lot of patience once you know, the big thing has happened. There's no time for epilogues in audiences' mind. I mean, look at how people reacted to uh, Return of the King. The last 20 minutes, so many people just hate that. So there wasn't time for them to go through, this is what happens to Red. So they, they were able to just shorthand it and make that last, I think it's like 10 minutes of him doing his thing and then going and finding the rock and going and seeing Andy like... I thought, oh, well, this was handled pretty well. This is a good choice. And I liked that adaptation because it really worked for the movie. And it still it still tells the same story. It, tell, it still tells how, you know, when you've lived your whole life on the inside and now you're out in this entirely different world and you don't know how to get by and you're an old person. So you're hurting and you've obviously not had the best health care and it's the 60s. So you get no respect as. Rodney Dangerfield would say and it's handled so well in the film and I wasn't sure if I liked it at first and then by the end I was like oh good and that so rarely happens it's so rarely in an adaptation where they make a really big change like that and it works and it still tells the story in the same spirit of the book yeah you mentioned having to rent this. I was fortunate enough to catch it when it was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there. Things come and go every month. So I kind of lose track of right. some stuff. But I was like, okay, it's on here. Because I think what happened was it went away for like months. And then it came back. Like all of a sudden it was back in my list. I was like, I don't remember putting this back in here. So I guess it kind of just keeps track of what's in your list, even if it's not available sort of thing, which yep. is interesting. Great job, Netflix. That's A plus customer service there, you know, making my life easier. Right? So yep. I actually wrote about it for Substream too, because, you know, I was doing this series on what took me so long to watch certain movies. And right. when I saw this was there, I knew this was going to be one of them. So I will link to that just so you guys can have a little extra amusement on <laughs> me sort of being ashamed. It took me so long to watch it. And, you know, you have in the notes here that you want to discuss why it was so popular on TV, which it's interesting what kind of movies that happens to, especially one of this length. You know, I'll see a ton of action he- action hero, action movies and superhero movies on TV these days. Like you turn to FX and you could right. be watching a Captain America marathon <laughs> like every other weekend practically. Right. And of course, Harry Potter. Yes. Harry Potter all the time. Also that. <laughs> so what was it about this movie that you think made it so popular on TV? That, you know, 
that was what I went into the movie wanting to know. Like I'd seen it, I'd, I'd seen the whole thing and then I'd seen it in bits and pieces on TV over the years. And like, I've talked about it with a lot of people cause I'm a, you know, I'm a big King fan. And I, that's one that a lot of people know is one of his more, you know, outside the box of Stephen King's stories where it doesn't have, you know, it's not scary. Well, it's not traditionally scary. The idea of being locked in a in a prison for a long time is kind of scary yeah. if you think about it. But, uh, you know, people talk about it. And I've never, I don't think I've met someone who just said flat out, that is a terrible movie. This is a bad movie and I don't understand why it's so popular. Like, people get it. People who have watched this film, which is most people, they they get it. Even though it's a movie that's, it's got, it feels like it should have a really small frame of watchers it's about you know long-term prison inmates in the past it's a historical movie if you look at it now um it's very 90s very 90s and it has um a pretty narrow image of hope but i think the hope is what appeals to people i think and and it's all men there is one woman in that movie and she dies in the first like two minutes but other than that, there is no no women. And yet it appeals to everybody if you watch it because it's it's a man who is brought low through no fault of his own and is forced to go through this really tedious and horrible and difficult experience, but never almost never loses his hope for a better life and never uh almost never gives up, even when he's at his lowest, you know, and he's persistent. It talks about how persistent he is writing a letter a week for like six years to get library donations and then upping it to two letters a week when they finally give in and, you know, give him his, uh, his $200 or whatever it is. And it, it works. And about the, this, it talks multiple times about the steady drip of water on a concrete block. And that's how eventually the water wears away the stone. And I think that's what appeals to people, but I'm, I'm never sure because I know that's what appeals to me, but everybody else has a different life experience. What do you think? Why do you think it was so popular that it's still shown on TNT pretty regularly? I think just how human the story is because, you know, we get this all from Red's perspective, but it's not a self-centered story in any way. He was like, yes, this is, you know, this is still my story, but Andy played the biggest role in it. And, you know, he is telling Andy's story how he experienced it, not how Andy necessarily experienced it. And I just think the fact that, you know, with Red being in prison so long that he would take such an interest in someone else and not in like a weird creepy way or anything like that he was just sort of fascinated by Andy enough to tell this entire story and I think you know it sort of shows that compassion too without necessarily intending to right and I think it's red is how Andy finds hope you know because like at the end when it talks about how he's he thinks he might have just gone and killed himself rather than exist because he'd been in jail for so long that he didn't know how to survive. And for him, like in the, well, I think in the movie, it's like he gets out in like 1969 or something like that. It all gets, it gets shortened a little bit versus the book. 
but you know it's a huge change from the 19 getting put in jail in the early 30s to 1960s like not as big as if you went in jail in 1960s and came out now now it would be a giant change but I think and throughout it he finds hope that Andy never gives up and that Andy has all these he has plans this is what I'm going to do after I get out of here I'm going to go and open a little hotel and I want you to come with me and that is his his little thread that he can hold on to even when he's bagging groceries as an old man and his arms hurt from lifting all this heavy grocery bags every day he's still like and he has to go to the bathroom right. every hour at a very specific yes. time <laughs> oh that scene in the movie just made me so sad i mean it makes me sad in the book too but in the movie it's so visceral right when he goes and asks that guy and you can you know, in, that's where movies sometimes are better than books, because in the book, he talks about how the guy is like disgusted by him. But in the movie, it takes a split second for you to see the expression on that guy's face and feel the shame that, you know, Red is feeling that he had to come and ask him. He had to, right. because the other option is, you know, there's always that risk after 30 years. I, too, would probably ask to go to the bathroom if the option was going in the hole for a week because you forgot to ask that's a big consequence and it was so in some ways the the movie really encapsulates the book even though it does differ from it 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 does really wrap up that same message very nicely and communicates it in a way that feels um genuine that movie feels very genuine and i think that's a part of what appeals to it is it's talking about some really hard things but it never gets um saccharin or you know it doesn't have easy answers for you like there's no pat response to these very difficult things that these men are going through yeah exactly well i think that wraps up everything we have for you know the story and the movie here it's it's just one of those classics and you know we touched on what has been going on with Morgan Freeman lately. And, you know, like you said, it does make it a little harder to watch. I think I watched it just before all of this came out too. So I didn't have quite that same feeling you did. But then I was like, oh, you know, I, I was sad because I had just recently watched it this year. And I was like, oh, right. him too. Like You've seen him be good. And then you're like, oh, it's that guy. Great. That's nice. That's just great guy. Yeah, and it's almost nice that authors are so rarely like that. They're such introverts generally that like that stuff doesn't a lot of times doesn't happen with authors, or if it does, you never hear about it because the writing community is um, that kind. Of, the literature community is a little different in how it reports on stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, who who lives in Maine? You know, Stephen King. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King. I'm sure there's other authors, but. He really overawes everyone because he's, you know, the biggest author since Charles Dickens. Probably sold as many books as him. It's pretty hard to beat him. I mean, even J.K. Rowling, like, she might have more numbers, but it's only because little kids read her book and they destroy their books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just that, that is very true. I almost thought we gave away my Harry Potter books one day and yeah whoo that was stressful <laughs> right like oh god now i gotta go buy them gotta go to half price books for five seconds and find a new set yeah i uh, i mean we did find them at least so i'm actually right well that's making good. my way that's good. through the first book again for a series of 
podcasts oh. on that. So it, it'll it'll be fun. But you know, Stephen King has like sixty books. I want to say yeah, something like that. I have all but two now, or I have almost have all but two. By the time everyone is listening to this, my mom and I will have all but two because I have five on the way at the moment. That's amazing. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. I as far as fiction library, goes, anyway. So it's hard to keep. It's it's hard. It's like okay, how much space do I want to dedicate to this? Like my uh, my partner and I are both really into Stephen King, and he uh, he and I have been into him for a long time. So periodically, we'll both go through a Stephen King jag, and we'll go and we'll buy them at half price books, and then we're like, okay, there's no room on the shelves, so we'll get rid of them and then rebuy them a couple years later. And at this point, I've just said like, no, we're not doing that. Anymore. <laughs> in my head, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna put them in a box and put them in a closet somewhere, and because I know I'm gonna read these again. And in ten years, if I haven't read it again, then I can give it away. But no, not before then. <laughs> I've just gotta save myself some money. Yeah, I will have to send you a picture of the stacks on stacks of books I have. So <laughs> maybe yes, it, it, if I'm brave, I'll post it in the show notes. We'll see here. But then, you know, yes. people might think I'm crazy. But that's, you know what, that's yeah, fine. Hey, that's fine. <laughs> it's cool. We can both, we'll post our book pictures and people are like, these these people are really dead. <laughs> like, that's right. We are very. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, Katie, thank you so much. You know, I have talked to you about quite a few Stephen King things here lately, so whether you're back on for something related to Stephen King or just another Star Wars movie or something, we will surely have you back again soon. Excellent. That sounds great. Awesome. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yes, you, too, you guys, too. Uh, see you later.